Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for another chance to think on important things under your authority and your word. We believe that you love us more than we love ourselves and that you have our best interest at heart and that everything you command to us is like a doctor's prescription to make us well and to wean us away from the hellish selfishness and rebellion that so roots in our hearts apart from your Holy Spirit's grace. So use the truth to sanctify us now, I pray, and to cause us to think correctly, biblically, and to have affections that are in tune with the truth so that you are honored by our whole disposition towards you and towards one another as male and female. Lord, there are so many directions we could go tonight. I ask you now very particularly for wisdom for me and for any who ask questions so that we use this time to the full for your name's sake, that we don't go off on any pointless rabbit trails, but that we stay on the path that would be most fruitful for insight. Guard us now from the evil one, I pray, and help us to put our feet firmly in your word. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Um, let me point you to, I didn't bring along a, the copy of the big book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, that Wayne Grudem and I edited. But um, what we've done is we've taken probably a half a dozen chapters from that book and put them in little booklets. The book, big book is is uh, expensive, it's like $20, uh, but these are not. And the, this one, What's the Difference, Manhood and Womanhood According to the Bible, was from chapter 2 that I wrote, and it's my best shot at answering the question that I asked this morning of what do you say to a little girl, mommy, what does it mean to grow up and be a woman and not a man, and little boy, what does it mean to grow up and be a man and not a woman? And this one is probably the most helpful chapter uh, that I worked with in the book, namely 50 Crucial Questions About Manhood and Womanhood. My guess is that all the questions that will be raised here tonight, every kind of question that I could think of in response to a complementarian position that I represent is asked and answered, just, just question after question answered. So if you wanted to go on further and you feel frustrated after tonight that your question may not have been thoroughly answered, this is the best I can do in these two little chapters here. But the big book has all of this in it, and uh, if they get that at the bookstore, you might want to invest in that as well. I'll probably come back to this one later. Um, but let me pick up at that point this morning. Here's, here's what I have in my mind to do for a little bit tonight. Is uh, I'd like to pick up with the question that I left you with this morning about how you answer a child, about the meaning of manhood and womanhood, and then... Uh, go to a biblical text, namely 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, and just give, sketch an interpretation there that will show you the, the general biblical parameters that I see in which men and women should function appropriately. And then we'll jump out from that a little farther to ask about the wider society and men's and women's roles there, and, and then we'll just see where we are and maybe start asking questions at that point. Well, I've got what this book is. Are two, this book is made up of two definitions: one of mature womanhood, and one of mature manhood. That's as close as I can find biblically to who we are, and what I would answer. So I'm going to read the definition, and then I'm going to restate it 
the way I might state it to my son or my daughter if I had a daughter. And I don't have a daughter. I only have four sons. To my wife's dismay, she's still at age, I'm 49, and she's 47. She still wants to adopt a daughter. Aren't we too old for that? <laughs> she does not think we are too old for that. She's away at a retreat, a, a retreat of silence, probably fasting and praying that I'll change my mind. This this very week, which I might do, since I believe in prayer. Who knows? But I wrote her a nice long Valentine's letter. We weren't together on Valentine's Day, and I had another wife stick it under her door, and uh, it was a letter all about how good how good it is to be married to her and. I wish she would change her mind about his daughter. <laughs> but I, but what basically I tried to say, uh, I'm really not insensitive to your longings. And I want to be open to how the Lord would lead. And so you can keep praying for me. Okay, here's my definition of masculinity. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility, a sense that's a key word. In other words, built into what it means to be a man is a sense. I don't, I don't call it a feeling. I don't call it a conviction. The best word I could find was a sense. It's there. A sense of benevolent, that means goodwill, responsibility to do three things. To lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's different relationships, period. I'll read it again. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility, or you could use the word accountability, or you might use the word initiative. But in a, in a dynamic with a woman, even a woman who's not your wife, like if you leave here tonight and you're going to walk a woman to a house somewhere half a mile away uh, and it's a man and a woman and she's got a black belt in karate and he, he doesn't okay these are the kinds of illustrations people throw up to me over the years um, and they're walking down whatever road that is 13th and uh, and this guy jumps out with a knife to threaten the two of you there is a sense I argue, in a guy that does not allow him to say, you got the black belt. Go ahead. Take him. <laughs> I mean, that may be true. She may be able to say, you know. And, and, but to me, that's irrelevant. That competency that she has, that's irrelevant to what manhood means. There is something written on him that says... Uh, I've got to take some initiative here. I've got to assume some responsibility here. I'm a, I may be an absolute wimp as far as my body goes, but I am not going to put her forward as though she's got to stand between me and trouble. And he may go up there and get himself clobbered, and she may finish the guy off. <laughs> but he's been, he's been a man. That's, that comes under the word protect. And I could do the same thing with lead and provide. So let me read it again. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to
to a man's different relationship. So he won't do these things, lead, provide for, and protect. He won't do those three things the same with a secretary at the office or a bank executive or a woman who carries the mail as he does with his wife. It'll it'll look different in every situation, but there'll be this sense that there's some responsibility here. Now, here's the way I would say... Here's for my 11-year-old. I've got an 11-year-old son. He's my youngest, Barnabas. I would say, uh, Barnabas, he says to me, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up and be a a man and not a woman like, like Lydia, who lives three doors down and has been up until age 9 or 10 his best playmate, you know? And now he's a girl and he's a guy. And you're 11, you don't do that anymore. It's kind of... Uh, and, and so he's asked now, what will it mean for me to grow up and be a man and not a like Lydia, whatever she's supposed to be? And I would say, uh, Barnabas, it means to grow up and be strong, humble person who feels a special responsibility. I think at 11, he can, I can explain to him what responsibility means. Responsibility toward women to see that good things that need to get done, get done. You should feel a special responsibility in relationship to women that good things that need to be done get done. A special responsibility that they be safe in your presence. A special responsibility that they have what they need when you're around and can do anything about it. It's basically a feeling of responsibility, Barnabas. When God comes to the door, this this is the way I illustrate it. If God comes to the door to call to account the two of you, in that room, he's going to say first, no, no. Is Barnabas home? Is the man of the house home? He's not going to say first, is the woman home? Just like in the garden, uh, where are you, Adam? Here's my here's here's what I would say about uh, femininity or uh, womanhood. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition. And there, that, that, that's like the word sense. It's a disposition. It's an inclination. It's a heart tendency. A freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's different relationships. Then I take 30 pages to unpack each of these definitions. I take every word, boom, 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 and just talk about why did I choose them. So it, I know I'm, I'm giving you just the, the skim of the definition, and it may be hard for you to compute with what's all implied, but let me read it again. At the heart of mature femininity, and mind you, I'm defining what it is in ideal, not for men or women what it always is in practice. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing, and therefore I do not want any of these words to communicate bondage or slavery or oppression. Okay? So that is a very crucial word for me. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to first affirm. Now let me stop there. Uh, What I have found as the most helpful definition of submission in marriage, I'll talk about this tomorrow, so maybe I'm jumping, no, not tomorrow. Friday, jumping ahead, but it doesn't matter if this little group hears it twice. Um, 
that's a that's a fighting word today in our culture. It is an explosive word. It's a negative word. Very few women jump at the opportunity to say that's my real call in life is to be submissive to a man. Uh, I mean, if, if you feel like that, you're very fortunate because you probably grew up under very good teaching or had some good models in your home and it didn't look like a horrible thing to you. Whereas for many, many, many millions of women, it's a horrible thing in their imagination and for many of them in their experience. Um, and, of course, dozens of books are written to endorse them in, in that. What I think it means is basically this. To be submissive to a husband is to affirm his leadership. Now, that puts it in a totally positive light. And my experience at my church, Bethlehem, over 15 years has been that the number one pain of women in marriage is not abusive husbands. Now, I know that's real, and we've dealt with some of that in my church, but that's exceptional. At least, I think, in the Christian church, it's exceptional. Not denying that it's there, and you come out of homes where you may have seen it happen. But the overwhelming thing that I deal with is women who complain to me that their husbands don't lead. They don't take initiative. They don't lead in devotions. They don't pray at, at the meals. They don't get the family to, to church. They don't handle the finances responsibly. They don't uh, do any discipline to the children. They just vegetate. They poop when they come home from work. They turn on the TV. They put their feet up. At 10 o'clock, they want sex because they've seen so many advertisements that turn them on. And then they go to sleep. And they say, that's, that's headship? You know, whereas these women want their husbands to love them, to understand them, to treat them tenderly, but to say, you, you know what the most common word is in leadership for head? I just ask, I ask couples, who says let's most often in your relationship? That's my test for leadership. Who says let's most often? Let's go out to eat. Let's go to bed early because we're tired. Let's have a family council because we've got to deal with this issue with the children. Let's get up so we're not late to church. Let's tithe. Let's talk about whether we should spank for that or not. Who says let's? Whoever says let's is the leader. And it's the husbands. And, and what women want is husbands who say let's. Not do this, do that, but let's, let's, let's. Let's go. Let's do. Let's talk. Let's make it happen. Whereas so many husbands, they don't ever say let's anything. But they just kind of sit around and hope that the wife will make things happen. You know, he's too tired to do anything. And they come to me and they say, what can I do? I want to grow spiritually. He doesn't. Submission in an ideal relationship is simply when that husband says let's, she says, oh, great. He's saying let's. He affirmed, to affirm that leadership. Second word, to receive it. You affirm it, you receive it. And then third, nurture. Oh, I struggled a long time looking for this third word as to what I mean here. Because of the role of a wife in cultivating the good things in her husband and in the relationship. Taking initiative from her repository of wisdom and, and uh, insight into reality and life to make contributions to who this man is and what he becomes and what the children become and what the relationship becomes. And so I've, I've chosen the word nurture his strength and leadership. There are all kinds of ways 
the, all of the initiative of making things get better in a family don't come from the man. You read, you read uh, Proverbs 31, and that superwoman there, who's up early, late to bed, working, making things happen, earning a living, teaching her children, clothing the children, uh, you know that she is a, a source of teaching and wisdom and blessing on that family. So I use the word nurture. So let me read again. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's different relationships. So the male man, he's at the door. She doesn't relate to him the same way she does her husband. And she doesn't relate to her husband the same way she does to the pastor. And she doesn't relate to the pastor the same way she does to a police officer. But in all of those relationships, there is a disposition and a demeanor that can affirm a man's manhood. And I, you know, if I, if I tried to describe this to you in little choreographic ways, like door opening or whatever, you would probably cluck your tongue and say, oh, that's so picky. But, you know, a cluster of several dozen or a hundred pickies make an atmosphere in a culture, in a school, in a city that is either wonderfully wholesome and sustaining something beautiful or is collapsing so that women and men lose their dynamic. They, they don't know how to do the dance of life with each other. They don't know what the moves are. It, it's a wonderful thing when a culture is like a dance and everybody knows the move. And it just feels, it flows good. You, you're not second-guessing on whether you're supposed to pull out the chair. You're not second-guessing whether you help with the coat. You're not second-guessing whether you flag down the waiter for the bill. You're not second-guessing whether she gets out and opens the garage door or you get out and open the garage door. There's a hundred, hundred things where it's so wonderful to just everybody knows what's done. Because I love to use, I don't know much about ballet and I don't particularly care to watch it, but when, but when I watch ballet... When I watch ballet, uh, I, I know when I'm watching two good dancers. But you know what? When, when, when it's happening, I'm, I'm sure somebody is giving the cue. Like she goes and twirls and, and he catches her like this. And, and, and I say, at that moment, I say... Uh, he obviously did the strong thing and she did the dependent thing, but it's obvious they are equally or she may be a better dancer. So in, in, the, in the choreography of life, I don't even ask questions about uh, is, is, is the woman part of the choreography a superior or better thing or is the male a superior or better thing when they're both working it's the the end product is beautiful comfortable freeing that's the so when it when a good ballet is over you praise the totality of it you don't say yeah but he gave all the cues and he must be better then or something like that here's what i would say to my daughter charity we we had girls names picked out for all of our four boys and uh Charity Ruth was one of them. For the 11-year-old Charity, I would say uh, to her, it means that you grow up to be a wise and caring person who feels a special desire, a special calling 
to give good men a lot of backing and a lot of encouragement and a lot of support for their special responsibility that they have from God to be leaders and protectors and providers. You give them a lot of backing. It means you become a creative partner to help men carry through the goals of their leadership under God. A creative partner, a help meet, a creative partner to help them carry through the goals. Now that, that, that's a very pregnant phrase to me. Help them carry through the goals of the family. And when I say their goals, I might even rewrite that as I hear it now. Because I think in a, in a good family, goals are, are forged together. The guys don't just do things without the wives being consulted because that's no honor to her whatsoever. So they forge common goals and then he takes a special responsibility to say let's over and over and over again to get them to happen. And she is always creatively thinking and he with her how she can assist and make that happen. And in that, her competencies at that point may be much better than his. I was with a couple last uh, night before last. Oh, was it last night? What is today? Tuesday. It was last night. She, they were making a, a two thousand dollar contribution to our church to, to buy Jesus videos because they were so thrilled with the evangelistic prospect of delivering these to six hundred homes, and she had gotten inheritance and and uh, and she pulled out the checkbook and wrote it, and uh, and they know my view and sensitive to, and she and she just said, I write all the checks in our family. And I handle all the finances. And there's no, I knew that already, because the husband can barely read. There's an eighth grade education. And, uh, and that's the way it ought to be done in that family. That's the way it ought to be done. So when I say uh, uh, to the little girl, help your husband carry through, be the help meet them, carry through the goals of the family, that's going to look different with every relationship. It's going to look different in church, it's going to look different in marriage, it's going to look different in each one of you because your competencies are, are different. I don't have um, a script for how husbands and wives work out domestic responsibilities and work out financial things and so on. I'm real flexible on that. Uh, and then, and then I would keep going to her and say, create a partner, men carry through their goals. And if you have a leadership role in the world that makes men the recipients of your influence, you will seek to exercise this role in a way that does not compromise the deep sense of responsibility that belongs to their manhood. That is a mega challenge. <laughs> that means if, if a woman is um, um, personnel manager in an office and uh, three of the employees are male men who are carriers. They drive vans all over the city delivering stuff. At that juncture where her a role touches them, the challenge will be for her to find a way to deal with them 
in a way that does not compromise their own sense of responsibility in relation to her to be a man with strength and protection and provision and leadership. Now, that may sound contradictory, that she could actually be a personnel manager, they be driver who reports to her and gets the envelopes from her to deliver and so on. Uh, and yet she find a creative way to treat them so that they feel their manhood is endorsed rather than compromised by her. I, I think it's probably possible. Where it is not possible, she's probably going to feel something inside. And he will, for sure. And whether she survives will probably depend on her own convictions regarding the kinds of things we're, we're talking about. You know, I, had sa- I was going to save for, for later this, but this might be a good place to put it in. The question of what guidance do I give to women in the workplace, in the, in the secular world? As, as you women dream, uh, many of your dreams probably are, I would like to be married and have children and raise children and basically be a homemaker with a lot of time to volunteer and be creative and minister at church and minister in the neighborhood, but no professional career aspirations. A lot of women don't want to admit that that's what they want today, but millions do, including some women with tears in my office who are forced to work because no man's ever come along. I had a woman, a 35-year-old woman in my office yesterday, and I was getting on her case for something because uh, um, she had let me down in something I'd asked her to do. And she just broke down in tears. And I said, well, no, what, what have I done? I, was, I didn't handle this very sensitively. And I, 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 I tried to say something to make amends. And she shook her head. She said, it's not. It's not this. It's not this. You didn't. You didn't. It, and then she just said, it's my singleness. And she just wept and wept. It's just my singleness. It comes in waves. She said, I'll be all right in a minute. She had just bought a house. Every time a woman who wanted to be married reaches a new phase in her life, like she graduates from college, that's a phase. And she wonders, will it ever happen? Maybe she goes to graduate school or maybe she gets a job. And uh, and then another phase passes. Buying a house is a major phase. And I said, you dreamed that. You dreamed that with somebody else, didn't you? You, you wanted to do that with somebody else. And cried and cried. But uh, I want to buy a house with a man. I don't want to buy a house by myself. But now she has a house. And so that was a, it was just a juncture there where uh, she was very, very sensitive to, to her singleness. Where, where, that, where was I going with all that? Women in the workplace. Yeah, right. Um, I still don't know how singleness got in there. Um, what do I counsel women? Oh, oh that's right. That's right. Just the whole issue of career. Some of you, whether you want to or not, will have to have careers. Some of you want careers, and you're planning for them, and you'll have them. And and many of those are appropriate. Most of them probably are, of those who are dreaming in this room. But some of you will have to have them. So there you are. You're out there in the workplace. Uh, you're a chief chief nurse on a floor, and now we've got male nurses. Okay. So you, you're the head, and you've got eight nurses under you on this floor, and two of them are men. That sort of thing. So it, it, it will be out there, um, and you will have to deal with it. Now, what do I say? What, what kind of guidelines do I give? And here's my little, here's my little thing that I give, because I do not have a list of 
male jobs and female jobs in America and say, here's the male jobs, don't get those, and here's the female jobs, get those. I find that there are, I want to say millions, and that's probably true, but tens of thousands of kinds of jobs. And they're all different, and in every one of them, there are different dynamics with male and female. So it would be hopeless to try to make a list of what's appropriate and what's not in terms of lists. We need guidelines or principles. And so here's, here's my effort that I take up at the end of this book. And this is all rooted in my understanding of nature that, that at, at the root of the role distinctions in the Bible are nature distinctions rooted in creation. Every relationship that a woman and a man have are either uh, more personal or more non-personal. And there's a continuum there. By personal, probably the most personal relationship is marriage. By non-personal, I mean, oh, maybe if you are a person who does sales on the telephone, call up and try to sell subscriptions to magazines, and, and uh, you don't have any idea who this person is on the other phone. That there are more, I'll, I'll give you an illustration in a minute, that are more non-personal than that. And then here's another continuum. There are relationships that are very directive and those that are very non-directive. That is, directive would be a drill sergeant or halt, you know, just or a, or a um, baseball umpire. You're out! That's very directive. And the non-directive over here would be where you give suggestions or you give nudges or you hardly use any kind of direct approach to influence at all. The principle, I think, that gives some guidance is to say to women, to the degree that your job involves you in personal interaction with men, to that degree it needs to be more non-directive. And to the degree that it is non-personal, it can be more directive. Because it will compromise less the man's manhood. Here's, let me illustrate now what I mean. Suppose a woman is an architect. Now, she designs a building, sitting in her room, thinking and drawing, and turns over this drawing to the contractor, who's a man. She virtually controls every move he makes for the next six months. And if he wants to understand this, he'll ask her. So that drawing that she created governs this contractor, his heating, his electricians, his, his everything. He's... He's just totally reading and making everything fit what she designed here. Another example would be if she's a um, civil engineer, say, or a street engineer or traffic engineer where she sits in a room and does a city planning thing trying to figure out which street should be one way in Minneapolis. And suppose she works it through according to what she thinks is best and she draws them and turns it over to the powers that be and they approve it. And now she controls which direction all the men drive on every other street, on all the streets. She made that decision. And he's going down one-way street because she decided he would. He doesn't have a clue that a woman did that. That's totally non-personal. Very directive, totally non-personal. I don't think there's any compromise in his manhood or her womanhood at that point. On the other hand, my son, Benjamin, graduated from high school last May. Yeah, last May. Went into the the Army Reserves the year before that and did his basic training in Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina and did his advanced training in Baltimore 
And uh, in both cases, there were women in his platoon. And one, at one point, he had a woman uh, drill sergeant. And uh, that, I think, is probably over the line. <laughs> I mean, to have a person in your face, chewing you out, telling you what you can do, what you can't do, who is a woman, who's your peer, is so mm. contrary, I think, to the dynamics that God has established that it uh, contradicts the inner workings of manhood and womanhood. I think the same thing would probably be true of a major league umpire. And you could maybe think of some others. And then there's just loads of jobs in the middle that are gray to me, gray areas, where what is called for is just a delicate, sensitive handling where a woman might even say, like um, a, a woman loan officer at a bank, and uh, she just helps people write mortgages. Seems like a perfectly legitimate role for a woman to have. But she also uh, may be moved to a position of more managerial responsibility, and, and her job then would be to uh, assign some hours or whatever. I think she could she could just get the men together and say, in words something like these, uh, I want you men to know that there is some misgiving I have about being your supervisor because I believe so much in the leadership of men. I want you men to feel strong. I want you to feel some responsibility for the safety of this place. I hope you'll be there late at night when I have to go to my car in the parking lot to stand for me. And I mean, there would be ways you could communicate uh, that would, I think, endorse a vision of manhood and womanhood that would not be a compromise. Now, let me see what we should do here. Let me take the next little while to um, go to 1 Timothy 2 and give some biblical, give a biblical interpretation of these controversial verses, talk about women in ministry a few minutes, and then maybe I'll open it up for questions. 1 Timothy 2, let's start with uh, maybe verse 11, 11 through 14. I have it typed here. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men she is to keep silent for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet woman will be saved through bearing children if she continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now that's enough to keep us busy for several hours. And it's a, it's a verse that Almost no pastor would dare preach on in America today, except in the most conservative churches where he knows they already agree with it. Um, because it's a good way to empty your church of half the women. Um, and yet, uh, I believe there is a way to teach on these things and to hold up a positive, beautiful view of complementarity in the home, which I'll talk about on Friday, and in the church, which we'll talk about a little tonight, that rings true in the hearts of many, many, many women and many men. 
The three words that need to be tackled here are the words silence. Let a woman learn in silence. What does that mean? Can't open her mouth as soon as she walks into church or can't talk at a business meeting or shouldn't sing when we sing hymns or uh, can't ask questions in the Bible study. Well, what does that mean? Silence. Second, the word authority. Uh, no, 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 the word teaching. I do not permit a woman to teach. Is that period? Can't teach her kids? Uh, third, the word authority. Or to have authority over men. So what I want to do is just tackle each of those words contextually and ask what they mean. So let's take silence first. Verse 11 says, uh, let a woman learn in silence. Now notice a couple of, of things. Um, it says, let her learn in silence, which probably the word learn, pro- first of all, it means she should learn. Be a growing, thinking learner. But it also means the context is one of teaching and probably one of corporate teaching or worship. It's not every possible situation in the world here. It's one of, of uh, in the church uh, setting of, of teaching. Here's another thing to notice. Back in verse 2, the same Greek word, hesukai, form of it, hesukion, is used in verse 2 where Paul is talking to the whole church and he says that we should live a quiet, same word, a quiet life with, uh, in all godliness. Pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. Now, what does that mean? A life in which nobody says anything? Qu- quiet. I think probably in English um, there are different connotations to the word quiet and silence. Silence sounds like silence and nobody can even whisper or bump anything. Silence. Whereas quietness means not that there may be total silence but that there's no ruckus or outcry or so we just need to be aware that this word in verse 2 is not total silence. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life means probably um, a life in which there's no uproar, a life in which there's no outcry, a life, a life without uh, explosions, whatever. You, you get the feeling of quiet and peaceable life. Then we go to the end of verse 12 for another insight into what direction Paul might have for this word learn in quietness or learn in silence. And the same word is used again where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men, but, literally, to be silent. Now notice the the contrast. She's not to have authority over men, but... To be silent. So the silence, if you ask now, what's the point of the silence and what's the, the, the contours of the silence? It's the alternative to exercising authority over men. So if I take that pointer at the end of verse 12 and the pointer from verse 2 and drawing in the fact that in 1 Corinthians 11, 
uh, you have women praying and prophesying in the worship service. They're not totally silent. My inclination is to draw this conclusion that it is a silence or a quietness that is not speaking in a way that would compromise the authority of the men. Not speaking in a way that would compromise the authority of the men. That seems to be what's at stake here. So hold that, and we'll see whether, as we move on and look at these other pieces, that's confirmed or not. So I I reject the absoluteness of the interpretation. She can't make a peep in a worship service or in a business meeting or in a teaching setting. But rather, she must not use her voice or her intrusions in such a way that it calls into question the leadership. Um, And I've experienced both. At my church, when I teach on Wednesday nights, for example, like I'm doing right here, overhead overhead projector, I teach for an hour and ten minutes, and at least half women. The women have half, I don't know what percentage, a lot of the questions. They, They ask just as good questions as the men ask, and I'm real happy to interact at that level in that setting with the women. But I I could imagine a woman's attitude becoming such, and a man's too, probably, that uh, she would be out of order and be calling into question the role that I'm supposed to assume as the leader and teacher. Let's take the word teaching. The second thing we need to look at is the reference to teaching in verse 12. I permit no woman to teach. Now, what... How, how absolute is that? What is there any guideline for knowing what limits are upon that or how extensive that is? And, of course, the way to handle that is not to just rebel against it and say, I can't mean that, but to rather look at the other places in the Scripture, in the New Testament especially, in the life of Paul especially, where women may have taught and ask, is there a guideline? And I, I've got three pointers. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, older women are to teach the younger women. At the end of verse, it says, they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. So here's one teaching, at least, just one, where women are called upon to be teachers in the church. So women who are older should feel a God-given mandate to take all the knowledge they've learned and to apply it to the younger women to help them know how to live. Second pointer, 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul tells us that Timothy should remember from whom he learned the scriptures. And we know from whom he learned the scriptures. He learned them from Eunice and Lois, his uh, mother and grandmother. Because his father was a pagan. He was a Greek. So a second, and and Paul was very excited about that. He said, remember the quality of the people from whom you learned these things so that you don't throw them away quickly. So the second kind of teaching that Paul endorses is mothers and grandmothers teaching their male and female offspring the Bible. Now, I think it's ideal if the husband in a marriage relationship takes the initiative there, but he does not have to feel... He's the only person that can do that by any means. And I I think, oh, man, I am so thankful that my wife is a, a reader and a book person because from ages zero 
sitting in her lap as little sucklings to age six when they head off to school she has them in books all day long well not all day long but lots of times reading 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 to them constantly from bible books and bible stories and all kinds of books so that our boys knew how to read way before they went to school and their minds are just packed with information one of my sons when he was Oh, this is this is no this is no boast of me. This is this is a commendation of my wife, uh, Karsten, our oldest, who's now 22 and is in graduate school out in Boston, which is the way it is. Was babysat babysat by uh, a seminary student, and in those days at Bethel Seminary they would give an English Bible test to the incoming freshmen. I mean seminary students to know which Bible course they should go into, how much Bible knowledge they knew. And my my son at seven aced it. <laughs> All because his wife I mean my wife just <laughs> his mother was read to him constantly. So I'm sure if Paul were writing to Karsten, he would say, Remember the quality of the person from whom you learned the scriptures. Third pointer, Priscilla, Acts 18.26, says, When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they took him and expounded him the way of God more accurately. Now, that verse is just loved by feminists because they'll use it to argue that women can be teachers of men. And uh, and I'm not going to write it out of the Bible. I'm going to say there's a place for a man and a woman if they hear a person who's doctrinally off base to go to them and sit down together and talk to them together. And I can imagine, I mean, I don't know how it went that night with Priscilla and Aquila, but I can I could imagine that, that uh, Aquila says, Apollos, you are a marvelous speaker. And you have some tremendous insight. But we've talked to the Apostle Paul, and we've got a little more experience than you, and there's some things that you got wrong. And uh, we need to share one of them, I, several of them with you. And then she might say, do you remember when you said uh, that John the Baptist did this or that? He didn't say that. I mean, then back and forth they go. I mean, I don't know what else it might have done. But in that kind of setting, there they are, the man and the woman, uh, talking to Apollos and uh, correcting him. So those three texts say to me that 1 Timothy 2.12 does not exclude uh, women teaching younger women, women teaching children, and women teaming up with men in some kind of partnership to, at an informal level, bring other men and women to a greater understanding. So I try not to have, in our church, um, women leading mixed groups on an ongoing basis then come back to that and you can ask me more questions about it. I say ongoing basis so that she becomes the ongoing spiritual mentor. But we have a lot of couples leading small groups and couples leading different things, couples offering parenting seminars and teaming up. And what I tell the couples is I say, look, um, you know what our vision is here. Model the vision as you lead the, the family. Just model it for them. Wives you talk, husband you talk, and the way you talk and share your talking and interact Model for them how you relate. Okay? Just show it. And, and so she's clearly involved in, in helping make this uh, seminar on parenting happen. 
So what does he mean then when he says, uh, I do not permit a woman to teach? Well, probably since we've opened the door to those three teachings, we should ask contextually here, are there any pointers? And I would go to the next phrase where it says, or exercise authority over men and say, that may be our best pointer. Just like we said that the silence is not speaking in a way that compromises that authority, that's probably what we should say about the teaching. Not teaching in a way that compromises the man's call to teach and exercise authority in the church. So Paul forbids it, forbids teaching, when it is part of the exercise of authority over men. That would be my... I think my bottom line conclusion from the kind of teaching that is forbidden. Teaching is forbidden when it is part of the exercise of authority over men. Now, let's go to the third word. Each one kind of sheds more light back on the other. You can ask your questions when we're we're done. Um, What does authority mean um, here? Not to exercise authority... Um, over men. Now here's an, here's an insight that I got that to me has really unlocked this verse in an unusual way. Um, the role of elders in the Pauline epistles is distinct from the role of deacon in two basic ways. When you read the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, and you read the qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, what's missing in deacons and present in uh, the qualification for elder is apt to teach. Elders are to be apt to teach. They're to be good teachers. So at the heart of eldering is teaching the church, the scriptures. The second one, the second distinction is ruling or governing. So in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says, let the elders who rule or govern or preside well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Whereas you do not have anything about deacons uh, where they're to govern or rule. So the two things that set an elder off in his role from the deacons is teaching and authority or exercising governance and leadership. And when I saw that and came back to 1 Timothy 2.12, I said, hmm, is this an accident here that the very two things that distinguish an elder are the two things forbidden to a woman? She is not to teach or exercise authority over men. I don't think that's an accident. That's, that's too coincidental. It's, it's not an accident. I think what, therefore, Paul is saying is, um, what I'm really saying is, women should not assume the role of an elder. The two things that define an elder are teaching, and the two things that define a deacon, I mean, a, 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 or teaching and governing or leading or having authority, And these are the two things that I say a woman shouldn't exercise toward men. And the church is made up of half men. And therefore, he's in essence saying, 
I would call women to exercise their gifts outside the eldership, and I would call men to assume a kind of role that takes the responsibility for teaching and leadership. Now, let me just go say a little further about what authority is. Luke 22:26, Jesus says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader become as one who serves. And Paul said, God gave us this authority for building up and not for tearing down. In 1 Peter 5, 3, he says to the elders, do not domineer over those in your charge. And so elder authority is servant authority. Servant authority. It's authority that you use to go under and lift up. So that when, when, when teaching is taught, it is servant teaching meant to take a people and lift them and bless them and and help them, not to rest on them. Like Jesus said to the to the lawyers, you load these people with heavy burdens and don't lift one finger to help them carry them. Oh, Jesus was angry at men who use their teaching authority to just load burdens on people's back. And then he said, you don't even lift a finger. Whereas he came in and said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I use my authority, I come underneath. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the, I'm sure you haven't, but because it's my crazy vision of what it would be. I, I love that text about my yoke is easy and my burden is light because here I am, I'm, I'm an ox, okay? I'm, I'm a donkey or an ox. And, and Jesus comes to me with a yoke and puts it on my shoulders. And he comes to me with a burden and puts it on my back. And he says, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And so you'll find rest for your soul. So here I am with this yoke on my shoulders called Jesus' yoke and this burden on my back. How can this, how can, how can you call this easy and light and, and I'm finding rest for my souls? And yokes are, of course, to, to hook things to so that you can plow, right? You put a yoke on, you tie the, whatever it is on it, and then you, and then you, the, the ox pulls the plow and he pulls it through the dirt. That's what yokes are for, or to hold them and pull a carriage or a cart or something. And so I pictured Jesus. He takes, he takes the handles of this thing that I'm hooked to and he puts the yoke on me and he puts the burden on me and he goes, like Superman, and lifts the ox off the ground about four inches and pushes the plow through the ground himself. And I'm kind of dangling it like this. Hey, this is groovy. All right. This is me. That's, that's my vision of the Christian life. I'm just hanging in the yoke and enjoying the scenery while Jesus uses me to plow the ground. It's not a perfect analogy, but I like it. How would I get on that? Oh, authority. He, he uses his authority to come underneath, and that's what elder authority is too. So let me try to step back now. We looked at those three words, silence, teaching, authority. Tried to give a... a, a parameter to each of them. Let me define authority and submission in the church uh, and then uh, wrap it up. Uh, Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility. I say primary. I unpack that in the book. Why I say primary. Because there's loads of responsibility that women assume in the church. 
primary responsibility as leaders, as elders, for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Now, here's my definition of submission in response to that authority. Submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership and the teaching of the elders and to be equipped by it, by that teaching and leadership, for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. 